A reading from the book of Moses, Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why, now, have you brought us about from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and the water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? A reading from Paul's epistle to the Philippians, chapter two, verses one through 13. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the spirit, if any affliction and if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Do not merely look out, oh, sorry. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 23 through 32. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why do you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for all regard John as a prophet. In answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came the second to the second and said to the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will, be into, will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in a way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so let's pray and we'll get started. Uh, Father, we're here to glorify you. We're here to hear from your word, to study your word, to know your heart deeper. We pray uh, as you pour out your spirit among us, Lord, that this would be a continued move of your Holy Spirit to give us deeper insights into your heart, that you would draw us closer to you, and that you would give us a deeper sense and experience in your presence. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So, if you look at your outline, um, it's the most abbreviated outline I've made for Wednesday yet. You can just say I'm trying to be more efficient or something. Um, gives you a lot of room to take notes. So we're going to look at, we're going to go to the Matthew reading, then the Exodus reading, and then the Philippians reading. And um, since we've been off for a couple weeks, um, if you notice, we were going through Romans, but now there would have been one week in 1 Corinthians, uh, and then we missed a week in the first chapter of Philippians. But I kind of want to tie an overall theme together, and part of that is the New Covenant um, the account in Exodus and how that displays that and how we work that out in Philippians. So, starting with the gospel reading in Matthew, let me actually open up my Bible and turn there, just in case. So, one thing I want to do is put a little bit context of the question why they're asking what authority... Um, by what authority do you do these things? So what is, does anybody know just the context or if you're looking in your Bible, 
what is Jesus doing? What are they like? Authority to do what? What's he doing? Yeah, he just cleansed the temple. He just flipped a bunch of tables and kicked out the money changers and said, you've made um, uh, uh, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers, is what he says. So just giving a little bit of context, in the first chapter, <coughs> I'm sorry, in the first couple lines of um, chapter 21, Jesus has coming to the end of his mission. He's entering Jerusalem. He's had the triumphal entry, people are singing Hosanna in the highest, praising him, proclaiming him as the Christ. Uh, He cleanses the temple, and then just kind of in a timeline sense, he cleansed the temple yesterday. He went out of town to stay overnight. He he comes back into Jerusalem, curses a fig tree um, that says, and that's, which is kind of important to what we'll be talking about. In verse 19, may no fruit ever come from you again, uh, and the fig tree withered at once. And so the authority that they're talking about, like why are you coming into our temple? You know, at that time in in um, in Rome, there were synagogues placed all over, and this would be like uh, going in Catholicism, going to the Vatican and flipping over, you know, the Pope's, you know, dinner table or something, uh, or whatever. <laughs> Um, it'd be, well, whatever they call the Pope's chair that he sits in. Um, I don't know all the terminology of Catholicism. So anyways, um, one of the main themes of Matthew is that he is bringing a new covenant. And so there's spoken in the New Testament of two covenants. There's the old covenant, and then there's the new covenant. And so um, one thing I kind of want to tie this all together with in all these passages that we're going to look like look at um, is the new covenant, and so let's turn to Jeremiah thirty one thirty one through thirty four, which we should know the context of it, or at least a little bit about what it says. But I'm going to read it just so we understand, because that's going to become really important if you don't understand like why Jesus is cleansing the temple, why he's doing these things. Um, and what the new covenant is and how important that is, then we start to think about little things and we start to get sidetracked like, oh, Jesus was just upset because they were selling things. No, it's because of everything that the temple represented, everything that God had designed, right? Um, You know, there's like secondary points to bring out in the cleansing of the temple is that he was welcoming in Gentiles and how racist and... um, you know, exclusive the Pharisees were and the Jews were, which was, you couldn't read the Old Testament and see that there weren't like tons of Gentiles being brought in and that you were supposed to welcome the sojourner and that the new covenant was like mostly about like going out to the Gentiles and then somehow uh, they get it twisted in their mind, even using the scriptures against the Gentiles and, um, uh, you know, uh, taxing them heavily through them wanting to bring sacrifices in the temple. So just to remind us, the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the covenant that they broke. Remember that when we look at Exodus, the covenant that they broke, the one in Egypt, when he brought them out of Egypt. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Uh, I didn't write the, this is quoted at least a few times in the New Testament about the new covenant, but all of Jesus's mission was about bringing the new covenant. And especially I want to kind of emphasize on about pouring his spirit on all people. And so we have the same spirit that's poured out on us that Solomon had uh, in wisdom. We have the same spirit that Moses had when he received the law, right? We have the same spirit throughout you know, all of the Old Testament. And so that's what, that's what Jesus is coming to do. That's a main focal point of his ministry of what he's talking about. And, you know, much about the kingdom, about growing and everything uh, is directly in context of the new covenant and the spirit being poured out onto all people. So we'll circle around to that with our other readings, but uh, I just want to point out some things quickly about the fear of man, obedience and hypocrisy, and things that would change the Pharisee's mind. So notice... Um, actually, I can probably just use this instead of flipping back and forth all the time. Uh, so notice how the Pharisees respond to uh, the question Jesus asked, right? They're saying, why are you doing this? What authority do you have to come into the temple, flip these tables, do all these things? And he answers with another question of answer this, and I'll tell you what authority, right? And it's all has to do about John the Baptist and where he derived his authority and whether he was a prophet or not. And in either case, they were driven by the fear of man because they didn't, uh, it wasn't about how the crowds thought of them, right? And because they regarded John as a prophet. And so they couldn't say that the baptism uh, wasn't, uh, you know, from the Lord and that John's baptism wasn't valid because they feared the people. And they couldn't say that John's baptism uh, was valid because they feared the people because why aren't they obe- obeying his baptism, right? Uh, I can't remember which gospel it is in, it's in, but it's either in Matthew or Luke, and it might be in Mark, to give you a hint. It's one of the three out of four. So <laughs> narr- you can narrow it down from there, where it actually says, uh, and it would have been in Luke 3 or Matthew 3 when um, John the Baptist is baptizing people, and it says that they didn't get baptized because of their hardness of hearts uh, or something. It actually gives the, fer- the reason why the Pharisees didn't get baptized, right? And so if anybody wants to look that up, that, that might be helpful. So either way, this fear of man is, is controlling them. That's their main motivation, right? And uh, in the context of John's baptism, it's a baptism of repentance, right? Their opportunity to repent was taken away, they were giving it away, essentially, because of how much they feared the people, you know, and um, you could end on that, maybe status and stuff like that, and, and what was going on in the temple in those days, but that was, Jesus is using, using that to, to show their hearts, and he brings that out in the, the parable of the two sons, one that said, yeah, dad, I'll do it, and then doesn't do it. Anybody have any sons like that? Anybody is a son like that uh, or a daughter? Uh, or the one that says, no, I'm not going to do it, and then does it anyways, right? Jesus says, which one was the really obedient one? 
the people who keep saying they're going to do it and are nice to your face and then don't, right? Uh, and then I always think it's funny that the, like the Pharisees, you know, on all accounts answer him and they're just like, oh, is this just like another question? Is this a riddle? Uh, it, that's the way it kind of, it comes across. Sometimes, what if, like if I was in the Pharisees' pictures and I was like, I'm not going to answer that because like you're telling this about me. <laughs> but they do. And then he shows it's about them, right? And, uh, and how much of that is about repentance, about receiving the gospel, is about, you know, directly related to John's baptism of repentance and that sinners and prostitutes are coming into the kingdom of God before you. You rulers of the temples, you high priests in Jerusalem, where all of your worship is central, you know, centralized, uh, there are prostitutes going into the kingdom of God before you because they repent and obey and they do uh, what the Lord calls them to. So, um, where's the verse about changing their mind? What would have changed their mind? What do you guys think? I'm trying to look at the verse. I maybe have it uh, probably quicker in my Bible. Oh, it's the very last verse. When he talks about the prostitutes and the tax collectors coming in, it says, and even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Right? Seeing that the prostitutes and tax collectors saw him. They saw, they knew John's testimony. They knew John the Baptist, his, what he was doing. Saw his baptisms and everything, right? And nothing, even they saw the tax collectors and the Gentiles coming in, lives changed, people healed, miracles, Lazarus raised from the dead, Right, I think it's in, uh, is it in John's account when, they, when Lazarus is raised from the dead? And their answer is, how are we going to destroy this guy lest he keeps raising people from the dead? <laughs> right? So nothing at that point would have changed their mind. And that's huge in, in thinking about like Jesus' mission of the new covenant is that, you know, you would have thought like in reading the Old Testament, there was like Moses, Elijah, Elijah, David, Solomon, all these people who were like, had the spirit put on, these like figureheads, these authorities, the 70 elders even, right? But it wasn't, you know, there was, it said the spirit came upon, upon some people to build a temple and to do these things. But reading this as like a prostitute who's coming to repentance, you wouldn't think that like you're going to be one of the people chosen in the new covenant to like, or in, in God's maybe just an old covenant way of thinking of like, I'm not going to get full of the Holy Spirit, right? But he's equating these that in the new covenant, everyone who enters the kingdom is going to have the Spirit poured out on them, right? And so with that, let's look at Exodus. So just to give a, a brief synopsis, uh, again, to update us, uh, Previously in the chapter, I'm sorry, in chapter 16, um, we get that manna from heaven, right? Manna and quail. Uh, God's sustaining them in the desert. They're crying out, we don't have any food. And now it's like, well, we got food. What do we have now? I'm thirsty. Need something to drink. Makes sense. Uh, so some things, just some minute things to, to remember 
as we look at this, that it's the same staff that Moses used to part the Red Sea. Uh, he joined the elders together. The elders sat before him, sat before Moses. Um, and the Lord actually sat over the rock. Right? And that seems like a small point, or it's a small por- portion of you know, just a little thing in scripture, but that the Lord was like on the rock that got struck, right? So I think we all have a pretty good hermeneutic to know that Jesus was the rock. We don't have to read 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 1 through 11, but you can feel free to turn there. That says that Jesus was the rock, right? That followed him through the desert. Jesus was the rock that got struck, that poured out water. Um, and so one of the things that's interesting in this and you know connecting those exact things in Corinthians, first Corinthians ten, that says Jesus was the rock. Yeah, you could think of like figuratively, like it got struck and the elders were there, or just like the elders of Israel were there and when, when Jesus was crucified and sitting before him and all these things. But sure Paul could have put that together and obviously by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he says uh, directly in First Corinthians says, these things were written down for you, right? So that you may not commit sexual moralities and things of the like. Uh, looking at verse four, land of verse four, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness, right? So where were they going? They're in the middle of the desert. They had... Uh, escaped the Egyptian armies, part of the Red Sea, all these miracles, manna from heaven, now the rock. Where are they going? To the promised land, right? That's always, keep in mind that like that's their goal. And there's people in the wilderness knowing that, that the Lord's leading them there. So as you read, um, and anytime the New Testament is referring to those things, you kind of have to have the whole story in line and think that these are people who the Lord had promised to get to the promised land. That's the goal. This is what has to happen to get to the promised land, right? So the rock was Christ, the rock was struck. Um, Even in, well, at the beginning of verse four, and drank from the the spiritual rock that followed them, right? Verse six, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did, right? So, not to be idlers, not to indulge in sexual immorality, don't put Christ to the test in verse 10, and then uh, in verse 9, and then verse 10, grumbling, um, and then verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Right, the end of the ages being the end of this covenant. Oddly enough, in, in the time it's written, it's the temple hadn't been destroyed. There's a little bit of an overlap of covenants, and the new covenant has already began, but the temple hasn't been destroyed yet. So anyways, so these things were written down so that we might not grumble as they grumbled, right? And obviously the end goal, the Christocentric, Christotelic, is we're supposed to look upon that as Christ and see that in order to get to the promised land, uh, which... um, you know, God's calling them in order to get there and didn't allow some to enter is because of their grumbling, because of their sexual morality, because of their rejection of authority and look at all these other things that happened as people died in the wilderness, right? But did Paul just like put two and two together? 
Did Paul just like, yeah, you could read that and obviously by the Holy Spirit, you would, if the Holy Spirit is inspiring scripture, he's gonna tell you the answers anyways. But uh, no, Paul didn't probably just make that up. Uh, let's turn to Nehemiah 9. Probably didn't just come to Paul. Um, starting, well, yeah, let's read 15 through 17. Nehemiah 9, 15 through 17. You gave them bread from heaven for their, hung, for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. All right? So, um, quick backup. Uh, this is at the Feast of Booths, right? Nehemiah is instituting various feasts. Feast of Booths, just keep that in mind, right? Because the Feast of Booths was celebrating going to the promised land, that there is another promised land to come. Uh, Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Going to 17, right? Okay. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Right? So, same thing, just about. (laughs) Right? That God gave them spiritual water, spiritual food, and they grumbled, but these were examples, even in Nehemiah's time, that not to act presumptuously, not to stiffen your neck, not to forget the Lord's commandments, and not to forget the miraculous things that he's done. Uh, a few Wednesdays that we were actually teaching ago, um, we kind of hit on that, like, <coughs> you know, when we look at um, Exodus in the story, like, these are our, this is our heritage. These are our spiritual people. These are our forefathers. And... So connecting that, you know, it's like we should be reading these things and looking at the whole picture and seeing, you know, not just that like, oh, they grumbled and uh, we're going to get to this in Philippians because it's all about grumbling um, or there's a small section about grumbling. Uh, It's not always we instantly, I don't know about you, I'm going to say me, but I'm going to guess you because you have a nature much like mine, but maybe even better, Uh, probably most of you better is it's easy to say and go, okay, don't grumble. I need to work on grumbling. Okay, don't complain. I hate when I complain. It's the worst. I can't stop. (laughs) And I hate it. Uh, Right? And we instantly go to a legalistic, I need to stop doing this, instead of what did the story in Exodus say? Gather the people and strike the rock and drink right? We can apprehend that grace. We could apprehend that spiritual drink from heaven. We can apprehend Christ lest we fall. There's only two options, that or fall into some sort of legalism. I think even when you're antinomianism, you're antinomian, that's still a form of legalism. Even when you say anything goes, that's still a form of legalism to me. So anyways, um, John 4, woman at the well, obviously there's the connection that Jesus is the true spiritual drink. He says, I will give you uh, water which you will never thirst. He, in his own ministry, connects himself 
to the water. That is how we ought to read these things. But just to tie some things together for your own reading and study, notice what Jesus says and just kind of remind, we don't have to go there and read the whole chapter. But notice, remember when Jesus says, you know, the woman at the well, after saying she can drink this, wants to drink this water, tell me where to find it. Uh, Jesus talks with her. And then she changes the conversation to like, you know, they say you worship on this mountain and we worship over here. And what's Jesus say? There's a time coming where you're not going to worship on any particular mountain, right? So, because we're going to connect the water, that Jesus is the water, the streams of living water, with the new covenant of the Holy Spirit. And let's turn to John 7 and do that. Because that's what it's all about. All of it comes down to, when because we, we're going to do some practical things in Philippians about how we ought to live. Sometime we'll get there in nine minutes. Uh, of in the new covenant, it's all about getting the Holy Spirit poured out. Drinking from Christ and receiving more of the Holy Spirit are one. In the, you can't have one without the other. That's what I'm getting at. That's huge in the new covenant, and we often often forget that. And so, where are we going? John seven thirty seven to thirty nine. One more page. Okay, what festival is Jesus at? Feast of Booths, same one Nehemiah talked about, that we're talking about in Nehemiah. Okay, on the last day of the feast, the Feast of Booths, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Praise God. We're going to be all cheerful and happy, and that's what that means, and there's just going to be cheer coming from me. Oh, let's read and know what that is. Maybe that's true, but that's not necessarily what it's talking about. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Right. So the same thing he's talking about in drinking from me in chapter 7 the same water applies to chapter four, right? It's about the pouring out of the spirit. When you drink from Christ, he pours out his spirit. And if you connect that with Exodus, it's when you, and First uh, Corinthians 10, and Nehemiah, when you get the spirit poured out on you, then you have power to obey. Then comes true repentance. Then comes life change. But you have to drink from the rock. You have to get the spirit. And so, in Genesis 1, even if we didn't have the New Testament, we should be able to get these things, but, because where's the Spirit in Genesis 1? Hovering over the waters, right? So, I know we have somewhere in our Holy Spirit series, uh, word pictures of the Holy Spirit, and I was supposed to make an article about that uh, a couple of years ago, <laughs> and I often get reminded of it, and has yet to be started, but... One of those first things we learn about the Spirit is that he's hovering over the waters, right? And so there's that connection that we should understand when the rock is struck and the people drink from it, the Spirit is connected. And so I kind of want to use that just to remind us in this time of the, you know, uh, uh, another kind of outpouring in our church of the Holy Spirit is that it was intended... Um, it doesn't say in Jeremiah 31 that 
that's intended for a one or two time thing, but that he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh and he doesn't give any limitation to it, that all people are going to know you, all, all people are going to know him, right? From the least to the greatest. And we should have the mindset, as we'll look at in Philippians, we shall have the same mind. Uh, and I think this should be the mindset. If you guys all have my mind, then we all have the same mind and that'll make me happy because then I could never be wrong. <laughs> or at least everyone would understand me and I would be, I would grumble less. That's not, that's not the solution to grumbling less is have more people conform to how you live. Uh, in case you're wondering. But, um, but it says have this mind about you is that if we set our minds to pressing in for a continued outpouring of the Spirit that should change our lives. If anyone's gone through the, like a huge point in how we do our baptism in the Holy Spirit studies is not just for one-time experiences. Sure, I love these, but the Spirit's supposed to take you deeper into Christ, to study his word more, to have deeper insights, to know the Father's heart closer, to have more workings of the Holy Spirit, right? And those aren't one-time small things here and there. It's supposed to be like the book of Acts, everyday normal things. So let's go to Philippians. And try to wrap this up in five minutes. So, the <coughs> verses 1 through 5 give us the how of verses 12 through 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for his God who is at work within you. Right? How do we work out our salvation? If there's any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any comfort from love, I jumped around there, uh, any sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, right? Which is yours in Christ, which we'll get into. It's easy to look at this and in throughout you know, if you, or through Philippians, those other things, um, the no grumbling part is actually comes into verse uh, 14, but that's the first thing he says after all this is, do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent. So we're supposed to be a community that is like-minded, one spirit, one baptism, one faith, one mind in Christ, right? That's what the new covenant is about, that we're coming into the promised land. Because what comes after they come into the promised land, and then what happens? What do they do? They fight people. <laughs> they work out <laughs> their uh, new promised land uh, place, right? They start kicking people out that don't belong there, right? They're in the promised land. They didn't expel everybody at first, but they progressively start per, you know, expelling the, the enemies and, until it's supposed to um, return back to the whole earth, right? And so that's our mission. That's us in the new covenant with the outpouring of the Spirit. That's how we do it. We often think, I love, you know, in my own selfishness, uh, I would often think that I would like to just go back to old covenant times when uh, there's enemies, we can just kill them. 
That would be like the easy way, right? But, you know, remember First Peter 2 is that when in long-suffering that Christ, when even when he was reviled against, he didn't speak a word, but continued to trust himself to the Father, right? He, he su- like literally suffered long. And so that's what I assume is out of doing things out of humility, having like-mindedness and letting others uh, not look into your own interest, but to others, that's hard, right? But we're supposed to be the people that drink from the rock, have the spirit, and are the people of God who are expelling the enemies in God's ways, right? So uh, just real quick, verses 6 through 10 give us the theological reason that we can work on our salvation and how we can live in harmony, how we can be the people, and how we can have one mind. It always comes back to looking and considering Christ, right? So when we are in our community, when um, you, know, you have to actually live in community and be with people, to, it's really easy to uh, not do anything from rivalry or, or conceit if you're not close to people. <laughs> so, but that's not the answer. Um, the answer is always looking to Christ and his example. We serve a God who actually took it upon himself to suffer and die because he is the embodiment of humility. He is the embodiment of long-suffering. And so we don't just have some moralistic set of, of rules and a law that's divorced from our God. We have a set of laws and rules that our Lord obeyed, who he, that the law is an extension of himself. And so when we look at, uh, you know, how to get out of the legalistic mindset and how to be a community of people who work together, who live together, who expand together, who uh, expel enemies together, we have to continuously go back to the rock. We have to continually drink we have to keep going back and looking at Christ's example and drink and drink and drink. And that's where he pours out his spirit. Amen. Uh, let's pray and then let's worship. Father, we pray that you would be uh, pleased with the, the meditation, the inward thoughts of our hearts, that our lips would not praise you um, divorced from our hearts. Lord, that you would be here present, that you would turn us towards you, that you would continue to pour out your spirit, that we would uh, be the people who come into the promised land, expel the enemies uh, as we drink from the rock continually. We pray this in your name. Amen.